Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember A kiss is just a kiss A sign of Welcome to another episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Last week, we learned about an actress who literally had several pounds of flesh sliced off of her body in an effort to conform to Hollywood's body ideals of the late 1920s. Today, we're going to hear the story of a woman who showed up in Hollywood around that same time, peddling a novel and possibly sadistic new way for performers to reduce their size. Madam Sylvia, our guest today is a beautician. Oh, him, huh? A beautician, Frank, is somebody that makes ladies look like what they ain't. Makes peacocks out of ugly ducklings. Uh, Do you mean a a magician? No, a magician (laughs) is somebody that takes rabbits out of hats and throws women into I got it, Frank. That's what Madam Sylvia is. She's a magician. Does Madam Sylvia saw women in two? Well, pretty nearly some of them. She <laughs> surely demands a pound of flesh, and she takes it. Today's storyteller is Christina Newland, a journalist who has written for Sight and Sound, Little White Lies, Vice, The Ringer, and other publications. She joins us remotely from the UK. Christina, tell us, who was Madam Sylvia? Madame Sylvia was sort of an influencer before that term was in common usage. She was a masseuse and a dietitian and a specialist in beauty, but um, she was also very good at self-promotion and uh, very canny at understanding the way that women were chasing physical perfection at this time. I think a lot of classic film fans who think they know everything about, you know, the late silent era and the, the 1930s in Hollywood have never heard of Madame Sylvia. How did you first become aware of her? I was reading about Gloria Swanson, who's a, a fascination of mine, and she seemed so grateful to, to this obscure Norwegian masseuse for her thinness, 
for calming down her nerves while she was stressed out on set. And uh, that was fascinating to me that probably the most glamorous woman in Hollywood at that time um, really gave so much credit to this person that I'd never really heard of before. Join us, won't you? As Christina Newland tells us the story of Madame Sylvia, Hollywood's first weight loss guru. In the late 1920s, beauty standards for jazz age women were fast evolving. Heavily influenced by the bodies, faces, and fashions of Hollywood it girls and the fan magazines that propelled them. Bad starvation diets and other dangerous reducing methods were advertised to help women gain the boyish, streamlined figure popular at the time. Into this brave new world marched a middle-aged Norwegian masseuse named Sylvia Olback, who advised a more moderate approach to weight loss and nonetheless got results. Soon, she would drop her last name altogether and become Madame Sylvia of Hollywood, beauty guru and masseuse to the stars. Through canny marketing and crass self-promotion, Sylvia spun her talents into solid gold, creating the modern phenomena of the celebrity personal trainer. She made readers and clients feel inferior for having any extra fat, and then promised that only Sylvia had the solutions to slenderize, refine, reduce, and squeeze away what Sylvia called their spare tires big enough to fit Garbo's Rolls Royce. In the early stages of the mass beauty industry, Sylvia helped spur a craze for female self-improvement that remains the norm in Hollywood today. During the burgeoning sound era, Sylvia made a name for herself working for the rich and famous, counting among her clients Jean Harlow, Gloria Swanson, Carol Lombard, Constance Bennett, and others, becoming the expert that every star needed to lose weight, and quickly. Sylvia had incredible access to these stars, who expected her discretion. But in 1931, Sylvia published a catty, tell-all memoir, revealing the intimate secrets of her clients and juicily titling it Hollywood Undressed. She had permanently overstepped the boundaries of her role and committed the ultimate Hollywood transgression. Sylvia Wilhelmsen was born in Oslo, Norway in 1881, the daughter of an opera singer mother and an artist father. The self-proclaimed ugly duckling of the family would grow up to stand only four foot ten. According to Sylvia's own accounts, she began studying nursing and massage in Copenhagen at age 16, and this seems to be the extent of her background in medicine. We do know that she met and married her husband, Andrew Olback, at 18. Andrew would lose his lumber business in the economic downturn caused by the First World War, and the Olbacks, a young family which now included two boys, Eolf and Finn, would make several moves. First, they went from Copenhagen to Bremen, Germany, and finally, in 1921, across the Atlantic to Chicago. Sylvia always worked, helping to support her family by performing massage treatments and body sculpting services. Her first notable client in Chicago was Julius Rosenwald, a co-owner of the Sears department store, who hired Sylvia to help his grandmother recover from a fall. Her massages reportedly had the woman back on her feet quickly, and impressed with her, the family kept her on. In the Rosenwald home, Sylvia met and mingled with Hollywood people for the first time, including gossip maven Hedda Hopper and star Marie Dressler. These luminaries convinced Sylvia that she'd be popular with the movie colony. And so, sometime around 1926, Sylvia and her family would move to Los Angeles, 
with a few connections and the immigrants' old hope of making a fortune out west. If there was a need for weight loss in Hollywood, part of that need stemmed from what was sometimes called the potato clause. Studios like First National and Warner Brothers demanded that their female stars maintain a set weight, and if they did not, their contracts could be terminated. In the 20s, quick weight loss was usually the name of the game. Actresses like Lila Lee and Vilma Banke admitted that losing 10 pounds or more in a few days was not uncommon, particularly when they were competing for a part. Hollywood was one of the few places that women of the time could be financially independent. But that independence and employment depended entirely on keeping their figures. In a 1929 photoplay piece on the menace of dieting, Catherine Albert wrote that female stars were regularly dangerously underweight. Don't copy stars' figures nor their diets if you want to be well and happy, she writes. Because of this stupid, atrocious style, they are affecting the health of women the world over. This fashionable waifish look was at its height when Sylvia arrived in Hollywood. The so-called reducing craze, which relied on snake oil salesmen peddling weight loss soaps and poisonous pills, had reached a fever pitch. Sylvia's methods were more sane. Her main tool to help her clients lose weight was massage. Although the American Health Association had claimed in 1926 that there was no scientific foundation for the claim that massage could reduce fat, it was also not dangerous, making it a vast improvement on what had come before. As Sylvia would later describe at length in her books, and in several magazine pieces, she did not use ordinary massage, but rough and tough poundings intended to stimulate and increase circulation, aid digestion, and squeeze off fat, which, according to Sylvia, could come out of the pores like, quote, mashed potato through a colander. Her methods were influenced by calisthenics, a gentle gymnastics designed for women in 1850s England. The received wisdom of the time was that strenuous sports or heavy exercise were not appropriate for women. In one column, Sylvia wrote flatly that no women athletes are beautiful. Kneading, rubbing, and pounding was a more acceptable method of weight loss, even if it was nonsense. The trend for slimness was paired with another commotion in the industry that would only stir up more actorly insecurity. Sylvia began treating Hollywood clients out of her home during the same year that the first partial sound picture was released, Warner Brothers' Don Juan. The following year, the same studio would release The Jazz Singer. Later, Sylvia credited the talkie revolution as key to her career. In the days when stars felt worried about their futures in a fast-changing landscape, the hiring of teachers, elocutionists, and other experts to perfect perceived faults, verbal or visual, made them feel better about whatever uncertainty they might be facing. Madame made the stars feel better, largely through tough love. When Sylvia would work on a studio lot, rumor held that the yelps of the movie stars in treatment would scare off passerby. Her bungalow was nicknamed the Torture Chamber. She was well known for ordering her clients around with absolute authority. If people would not follow her commands religiously, she was unafraid to shout, belittle them, or give them the boot. Her personality was effervescent, humorous, but brutally frank. You towed the line with Sylvia, or else. The press at this time regarded Sylvia with fascination, regaling her with a variety of nicknames and job descriptions, including the vaguely sinister-sounding title of Hollywood's Flesh Sculptor. 
Sylvia's differentiating gimmick was her brutal massage technique, but she used her hands in concert with a number of other weight loss methods that were, honestly, probably more effective. She made her clients swear off alcohol, sweets, and starch, and put them on diets consisting of nothing but steamed vegetables, spinach, whole wheat toast, and liver. She told women to dance in their living rooms, rather shrewdly premeditating the aerobic dance craze of later decades. Sylvia would also talk about facial beauty. She was an early adopter of the skincare routine, describing cleansing the skin with mineral oil, tapping the face gently for circulation, applying a cream made of rose, almond oil, and clove oil, and then washing off, followed by an astringent. It sounds suspiciously similar to our contemporary obsession with miracle cleansers, serums, and toners. Between 1927 and 1930, actors both male and female would flock to Sylvia's slab for her special treatments, which she sometimes referred to as a good spanking. She was essentially freelance until 1929, when she was put under contract at Pathé Studios with the promise to shower the majority of her attention on movie queen Gloria Swanson. This was mostly down to the mogul and co-owner of Pathé, Joseph Kennedy, who was Swanson's manager as well as her lover, and who encouraged Sylvia to take the offer. Kennedy, father of the future president, was a Boston banker and Johnny-come-lately to the movies. He was married, and so was Swanson. Apparently impressed with Sylvia's diagnosis of his own health trouble, Kennedy insisted that the masseuse see his movie star mistress, who was overworked and exhausted from their latest production, Queen Kelly, and in need of a good rubdown. The film remained shelved and unfinished. Swanson and Kennedy had hired another notorious foreign martinet, Eric von Stroheim, to direct, only to find that he was utterly beyond their control. In 1930, Pathé Studios records show that Sylvia was on the payroll for $250 per week, which, adjusted for inflation, is about $3,800 today. She and her roster of clients had weathered the transition to talking pictures, and her yearly salary was more than twice the national average. Though Sylvia was a success, not all was peaceful on the Pathé lot. She soon became caught between two of the studio's renowned beauties who were warring over her services, Gloria Swanson and Constance Bennett. Bennett was an up-and-coming knockout blonde who, according to some, arrived at Pathé immediately resenting Swanson's queenly status. Known best for her later roles in What Price Hollywood and Topper, she also came with a reputation for being prickly and argumentative. Gloria Swanson was one of the biggest film stars in the world, and certainly the most glamorous. She had been that way since 1919, when her role in Cecil B. DeMille's Male and Female cemented her fame. Her clothes horse extravagance and fabulous marriages were the talk of the nation in the 20s. Bennett, allegedly determined to knock her rival down a few pegs, ended up having an affair with Swanson's then-husband, the Marquis de la Falaise, and even tried to bribe Sylvia with a sapphire ring in order to get her services away from Swanson. But Sylvia remained loyal, and Swanson would continue to take priority. Perhaps the masseuse's loyalty came down to Swanson's influence and power. Maybe it was out of sympathy for Swanson, who was devastated when she received a cunningly misaddressed love letter to her husband written by Bennett, 
who would go on to instigate a divorce and marry de la Falaise weeks later. Or maybe it was because, as Vanity Fair had it in 1935, Constance Bennett was, quote, the most cordially disliked woman in Hollywood. And the choice was easy. Although Swanson's personal life was messy, her next project, an early sound musical called The Trespasser, was a triumphant success, both critically and commercially. Sylvia would get what she called her biggest break when Swanson mentioned to Chicago newspapers that a talented Norwegian masseuse was the one to improve her puffy face and overworked nerves. Riding high and ignoring Bennett's overtures, Sylvia's position seemed like an ideal one, but it wouldn't last for long. By the close of 1930, the United States was muddling through the consequences of the 1929 stock market crash, the biggest financial freefall in the nation's history. Thousands of banks were failing, and the unemployment rate was rocketing upward. The Depression had also taken its toll on Pathé Studios, who were already cash-strapped when it hit. There were layoffs of non-essential employees, and Joseph Kennedy, ever the shrewd businessman, had already left Gloria Swanson holding the bag for her filmmaking debts, resigned as her manager, and absconded to the East Coast with a huge share of Pathé's stock. His absence made it easy for Sylvia to fall through the cracks, and she was dropped from her Pathé contract. Kennedy would make millions when he then sold Pathé to RKO. But Sylvia was freelance again. So she was in need of a new gig when Liberty Magazine came calling to ask Madame to write a series of essays for them about the inner lives, and under things, of the Hollywood elite. In a decision that would prove to be the turning point of her career, she said yes. Madame Sylvia had had a thriving business shaping the bodies of the stars, which put her in a prime position to hear plenty of juicy gossip. She would later divulge that there was something about stripping down to your underwear and being smacked around that made her clients a little quicker to share secrets. But these secrets were shared in the spirit of intimacy. They were not intended for public consumption. Sylvia surely knew this, but she not only shared them anyway, she sold them. Before long, a princely sum of $15,000 for a full manuscript would be offered by Liberty Magazine's publishing arm. Newspaper items of the time claim that Sylvia was set to collect a further $50,000 from the publication of the book, a vast fortune during the Depression-ravaged 30s. Rather than write her own memoir, Sylvia looked for a ghostwriter who would pretend to be a loose-lipped employee of hers. A man named James Whitaker was chosen for the job. Whitaker was a newspaperman, and maybe tellingly, the ex-husband of Sylvia's former client, film star Ina Clare. The book was tantalizingly called Hollywood Undressed, Observations of Sylvia as noted by her secretary. But it was clear to everyone in Hollywood that Sylvia had no secretary, and that the observations were hers, and that the publishing of these observations constituted a major breach of both each individual client's trust and the unwritten rules of the film industry. It's difficult to know the exact cause of Sylvia's bone to pick with the industry that had, in a few short years, made her wealthy. Surely the sum of money offered to her for the memoir must have seemed eye-watering, 
given that it exceeded her yearly Pathé salary and came on the heels of her unemployment from that studio. But even so, Sylvia's foresight was lacking. She was arrogant enough to believe that she could keep working and that her stars simply couldn't make do without her. She said as much to the press. In her love for publicity and desire to live up to her image, it seems entirely possible that Madame Sylvia of Hollywood lost sight of her real utility and flew too close to the sun. She thought Swanson and friends couldn't live without her, but she didn't realize that nobody was indispensable in Hollywood, especially not immigrant troublemakers who wanted to be stars themselves. Whatever motivated Sylvia, there's no question her publisher had their fingers on the pulse of a Depression-era book-buying public, hungry to see the rich and famous taken down a peg. Sylvia shrewdly fed into this hunger when she told a newspaper that people in Hollywood were, quote, a bunch of saps ruined by too much money. The best way of dealing with these cinema children who have been accustomed to having people lay down and worship them is to spit in their eye. Ina Clare, a silent-era star who was most famous for her later appearance in Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka, was definitely one of the people wiping spit from her eye that summer. In the book, she's described as overfed and lazy, like a royal gone to seed. Other targets of Hollywood undressed included male clients who sought Sylvia out, and are thus seen as effeminate and unmasculine. The book briefly veers into Hollywood Babylon territory when it reports that Sylvia treated Latin lover Ramon Navarro in a bedroom entirely designed to replicate an ancient crypt. His bed, she claimed, was modeled after a sarcophagus. It's not hard to catch on to the implication within that Navarro, described as soft and delicate, was gay. And if you didn't see it in the subtext, there was the matter of the chapter title. Narcisses. Although it was less spoken about, male stars were under pressure to maintain their perfect physiques just like female stars. The men in Hollywood had the added stress of knowing that should their vanity be exposed, it would leave them open to the added insult of emasculation and sneering homophobia. Another actress who fell afoul of Sylvia was Mae Murray, known as the girl with the bee stung lips. Murray is probably best known for her starring role in Eric von Stroheim's 1925 movie, The Merry Widow. Back in 1927, before her time with Swanson and Pathé, Sylvia had entered into a private contract with Murray. In Hollywood Undressed, Murray comes off as childish and stingy. At one point, Murray tried to feed them with some inedible diet food that she'd invested in. According to the book, at the end of a six-month stretch traveling and working together, Murray refused to pay Sylvia what she was owed, and Sylvia successfully sued. But perhaps the one who took the worst flack was Constance Bennett. Gossip had been flying already about her trip to Paris, where she had supposedly adopted a three-year-old boy. Decades later, Bennett would finally admit he was her biological child, born out of wedlock. But at the time, all anyone had to go on was rumor. Of the adoption, Sylvia offered a nasty insinuation. A baby can build up a woman's weight better than a masseuse can, but Connie, the little innocent darling, should be told that it isn't done by adopting a baby. It's fair to say that Sylvia and her cohort picked their targets carefully. 
That the masseuse was siding with the eminent Gloria Swanson against Constance Bennett seemed apparent. While Sylvia is quick to mention Constance's bad behavior and her affair with Swanson's husband, the book fails to mention that Swanson too had a lover in the form of Mr. Joseph Kennedy. Kennedy gave Swanson's husband, the Marquis de la Falaise, a job in Paris as head of Pathé's European productions in order to get him out of the way. Both affairs would eventually lead to the breakup of Swanson's marriage, and Sylvia was present throughout. Yet she remained silent on the topic publicly. As much as Hollywood Undressed was a way for Sylvia to get back at her petulant clients and to line her pockets, it was also something else. Madame Sylvia always had a knack for self-aggrandizing, and here she could do it shamelessly. A famous celebrity elopement? Undoubtedly because Sylvia had whittled down the lady's hips. Ensuring the success of Jean Harlow's career by helping her lose those extra few pounds? To Sylvia's credit. Showing Hollywood how to be their most beautiful and trim selves? A job for only one woman, and I bet you can guess who. Above all, Madame was depicted as tough but fair, straight shooting, and effective when it came to matters of the figure or complexion. Hollywood Undressed was as much an advertisement for Sylvia's wares as it was an expose on the star's bad behavior, right down to its final chapters, which were straightforward diet and exercise guides. But within the mafia-like walled garden of Hollywood, no one cared about the book's utility. They saw it as a betrayal. Nobody, nobody will ever go to her again, gossip maven Hedda Hopper declared in response to the book. She would rub anyone at any hour of the day and night if they would print pieces about her in papers and magazines. Sylvia, Sylvia, that name must become more important and famous than the stars. Hedda publicly advised that the community boycott Sylvia's services. Another star commented anonymously, but with equal vehemence. She can't live forever on what they paid her for her articles. She's through in Hollywood, absolutely. When such attacks flooded in, Sylvia battened down the hatches. In an interview with a columnist for a movie classic magazine, she declared, You tell everybody for me. Sylvia doesn't run away from anything. I am of a race that doesn't run. If anybody has anything to say to me, I'm here. If they want to give me a sock in the jaw, they can find me right where I've always been. In truth, Sylvia had run. She had left California for New York prior to the book's publication that July. Husband Andrew remained behind in their L.A. home. That October, Sylvia told Hollywood fan mags that she was getting as much work as a masseuse as ever, with celebrity clients like Dolores Del Rio on her slab. The same month, she told the New York News that she was through with massage and planning to quit in order to write. The latter statement seems to have been the more truthful. Sylvia was making plans for new income streams that would not make her so reliant on her offended stars. Within a year of Hollywood Undressed's publication, it became clear that Sylvia had landed on her feet. She had picked up a column for Photoplay magazine, and not long after, her own NBC radio show, where she regaled listeners with stories from her movie days, and eventually staged short, dramatic sketches which focused on movie stars like Irene Dunn and Dolores Del Rio. 
Sadly, no known recordings of her radio show have survived, nor the brief newsreel footage taken of her. Again and again throughout her work, Sylvia spoke about the importance of staying slim in order to find a man. You know the old saying, nobody loves a fat man, she would write in 1931. That's doubly true of women. Fat is a great stumbling block in love. Body shaming was the cornerstone of Sylvia's business, and the urge to snag a man and then keep him was a major motivator for most health and beauty-related advertisements of the day. In 1932, proving to be her own best advertisement, Sylvia divorced her husband Andrew, who she'd been with for 31 years. She soon eloped with a handsome young actor named Edward Leiter, who was 22 years her junior. No public reasons were given for the divorce, but it was apparent that the masseuse had left the older man for the younger. Leiter came from a prominent and wealthy family, and given the timing of their marriage, a cynical observer might wonder if he was a form of insurance for Sylvia's career transition. Settled with her new husband on the East Coast, a safe distance from the wrath of people like Hedda Hopper, Sylvia could more or less say what she liked. And so she did. Leiter encouraged her to write plays, and several news items appeared about her play, They Who Get Slapped, said to viciously lampoon Hollywood and its inhabitants. The play was copyrighted, but remains unproduced, and appears to be lost. Still, that it ever existed is evidence that Sylvia was doubling down on her critiques of Hollywood rather than retreating. In the spring of 1934, Sylvia ran a promotion on her radio show for a brand of diet bread called Rye Crisp, hiring someone to play the part of Ginger Rogers without the actress's knowledge. In the invented sketch, Ginger's producer is worried about her ambition to play dramatic rather than musical roles, and the related stress is making her neglect her figure. Sylvia advises the Ginger imposter about diet and exercise along with a plug for rye crisp bread. Understandably miffed by the suggestions and feeling she was being impersonated against her wishes, Rogers complained to her studio. RKO, who had the year previous released the first of her major collaborations with Fred Astaire, flying down to Rio. She asked for $100,000 in damages for slander from NBC and Madame Sylvia. The matter was settled out of court for a tiny fraction of what Rogers had asked for, and Sylvia got the message that there was little cost, and much to gain, from mocking the stars. That same year, Sylvia took to her photoplay column in her typical tough love style to scold the appearance of former it girl Clara Bow. Bow had blazed across silent screens only a few years before, but had now packed up and left Hollywood to live on a ranch in the desert with her husband. Amidst cruel rumors about her personal life, Beau had essentially quit Hollywood, only to be tempted back to the screen for a two-picture deal with Fox. In the second of these, Hoopla, from 1933, Clara plays a scantily clad hoochie-coochie dancer. It was a forgettable romance picture, but it evidently stuck in the mind of Sylvia, who chose to write an open letter to Beau in her column. I've always admired you, she writes. But right now, Clara? Your face is too fat. She went on to recommend facial massages to correct this flaw for the next time Bo appeared on screen. Only she wouldn't appear on screen again. 
Hoopla was Clara Bow's final film before retiring, aged only 28. One of the reasons for Bow's early retirement was her inability to handle the harsh scrutiny leveled on her by poison pen observers like Sylvia. Sylvia penned pieces along similar lines in photoplay right up to 1936. While she maintained her harshly critical attitude, Sylvia would take a different tack for her next published works, focusing instead on pragmatic diet, exercise, and at-home massage guides for the masses. By the end of the 30s, Sylvia had published three how-tos on health and beauty. They were named with the same gutsy style Sylvia had become known for. No More Alibis in 1934, Pull Yourself Together, Baby, in 1936, and Streamline Your Figure in 1939. In these manuals, Sylvia was no-nonsense, combining what occasionally sounded like self-help with a harsh disciplinarian style that left little room for the modern concept of self-love. In her book No More Alibis, she devotes a chapter to the, quote, in-between figure, and begins it by saying, you in-betweens often get the idea you're all right, and you aren't. Just take a good look at yourself. No, you aren't fat, and you aren't thin, but look at that chest. It's too flat. Your ankles are too thick. Your abdomen sticks out. And I haven't space to tell you your other defects, but I bet they are there, and plenty. Although Sylvia regularly wrote in this tone, she was also an early adopter of positive mental attitude, encouraging her readers to, quote, develop some gumption and to use what time or resources they had available to them to do light exercise. Her advice was accessible, with a stern, can-do attitude that was largely reflective of Depression-era values. She often used her celebrity clients as examples for the everyday woman, advising them how they could get a physique like Harlow or glistening hair like Crawford. Most stars were asked to advertise or endorse beauty products as a part of their studio contracts. Sylvia was merely cashing in on the demand for knowing how famous women maintain their beauty with a slightly different supply. And then the guru stepped into the shoes of a celebrity endorser by manufacturing and marketing a cold cream called Silva Glow. In 1936, she launched a proto-version of a cash-in conference like InGoop Health by launching a lecture tour of department stores and auditoriums around the country, drawing crowds to hear her discuss the secrets of at-home massage, exercise, and diet, along with added tips she had picked up on poise, vitality, and overall grace. By the end of the 1930s, attitudes were beginning to shift. Sylvia's radio show was canceled in 1936. In 1939, with the clouds of war over Europe, more urgent issues were at hand, and the beauty and diet industry took a temporary backseat. While diet books continued to sell during wartime, Sylvia's last book, published that year, did not perform well. Perhaps it was the condescending tone she took, Mixed with her total disregard for anyone with disabilities or perhaps sensitive to her constant insistence that nobody could love a fat person. Rumors flew that she was being mocked in George Cukor's 1939 film, The Women. The film starred a roll call of Sylvia's old clients, including Norma Shearer and nemesis Hedda Hopper. In one scene, 
A trim, dictatorial little exercise guru puts Rosalind Russell through her paces at the spa. The things I do to keep my figure, Russell grumbles as the woman scolds and corrects her posture. Depicted within a world of female cattiness and criticism where she would probably be right at home, this is a less than flattering, though perhaps fitting, acknowledgement of Sylvia's influence. The same year, Sylvia retired from the public eye, buying a home in Santa Monica, California with her husband Edward and remaining there, in relative obscurity, for the rest of her life. Advertisements for Sylvia's books ran through the early 40s and again in the early 50s, but she would never again return to the limelight. In spite of a whirlwind career that saw her write four books, launch a radio show, dream up a stage play, and lecture nationwide, she would die in 1975, a month after Edward, aged 94, with only housewife listed on her death certificate. In some respects, Sylvia might be seen as a force for good by comparison to the quacks and weight loss gurus who had come before, with their schemes for rubber fat-holding contraptions and laxative-filled chewing gums. Irene Mayer, daughter of MGM head Louis B. Mayer, claimed that in the early days, tapeworm diets were sometimes prescribed for actresses needing to reduce. These things made Sylvia of Hollywood seem saintly by comparison, but she was not beyond reproach. Today, we do not encourage dieters to lose a dangerous 10 pounds in three days, as Sylvia claims she did. We do not limit dieters, as Sylvia did, to only two glasses of water per day or mimic Sylvia's attempt to squeeze the fat cells down to cure a pudgy face or bulbous nose. Nor do we take Sylvia's advice to go for singing lessons to increase breast size. But for better or for worse, the pint-sized Scandinavian dynamo had amassed a fortune with her advice, and with the eye-for-an-eye salvo that made her career as precarious as it was lucrative. Sock them on the jaw before they sock you, she told the press, more than once, over the years. With a combination of clever self-promotion, questionable methods, and a pugnacious, unlikable approach, she was a hustler for the ages. I don't like her, but I sort of admire her. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Christina Newland. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon, and the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. 
Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.